Hi, I'm Jackie Miller, high conflict divorce coach and consultant and host of this podcast, Out of Crazy Town, your guide to divorcing a narcissist. This episode is about stalking abuse during divorce. During a high conflict divorce, a disordered individual will often engage in stalking activities as part of the post separation abuse. This is a serious issue that leaves victims nervous, scared, and sometimes fearing for their lives. I had the honor of interviewing both Randy McAllister, who is Deputy Director of Public Safety and Police Captain, as well as a Task Force Officer with the FBI in Threat Assessment and Threat Management, along with Katie, who has been a victim of stalking during her divorce. Katie shares her story and how she has used threat assessment in her case. Join me as I speak to these two amazing individuals about this important topic. All right. Hello. Welcome to Out of Crazy Town, your guide to divorcing a narcissist. I am so excited to have guest Randy McAllister on the show today. Welcome, Randy. Thank you. Good to be here. And we also have a special guest, Katie, who's on, who is a um, victim of stalking as well in her high conflict divorce. And so Katie's going to chime in and tell us a little bit about her experience and how she got involved with Randy. But first, Randy, I want to tell folks a little bit about you. Um, It's very hard to introduce you. (laughs) And I'm going to tell you why. Randy's curriculum vitae reads like a novel. So (laughs) we have the most experienced uh, gentleman on the show that we could possibly have for this topic. So let me just tell you a little bit about him. He's currently the deputy director of public safety and an investigative uh, police captain. And that is at the Cottage Grove Police Department, correct, Randy, outside of Minneapolis? Okay. Uh, Yeah, near Minneapolis. Near Minneapolis. Okay. Now, you are also the owner and founder of the McAllister Threat Management uh, Company, where you provide training and case management consultation services in all areas of targeted violence and threat assessment. And then going back into your career history, you have been involved in the delivery of emergency services since 1990. Um, So you've been sort of in the first responder role for a long time as well as were a former team commander on the county SWAT team, where you had specialized training in hostage rescue, civil disturbance, and executive protection, and then a lot of other stuff. But now you're a member of the Association of Threat Management Professionals and a certified threat manager. And if I understand correctly, you're the one of the first people in the country to receive. Yeah, I think one of the first uh, 30 or 20, 24 or 30, something like okay, that. Okay, okay. Very cool. Um, and you're a national trainer on stocking. And you are a task force officer with the FBI in their threat assessment and threat management initiative um, and designated threat management coordinator for the behavioral analysis unit, otherwise known as the BAU. My daughters are going to be thrilled that I'm talking to you today because they're addicted to the show Criminal Minds. <laughs> I'm nowhere near as good looking as all those actors. Oh, yes, you are. Yes, you are. They should cast you immediately. Um, So that is why I know what the BAU is. That's my Hollywood. That's my Hollywood experience with the BAU. So thank you again for coming on. Um, You're on this show because in the context of high conflict divorce, in my experience as a divorce coach and consultant, stalking has come up over and over and over again. And so I wanted to first though ask you, how did you end up here? Like in your extensive career, how did you end up in your threat management? Yeah, actually assessment? it was um, back in, I, I think it was 2006. I was um, a sergeant at the time. I was supervising a night shift here at uh, Cadre PD. And 
Um, I was also a team leader for the, the county SWAT team. And it, it was in the middle of the night and heard a, a call come out on the radio that there was a possible double homicide in the hostage situation in more of the rural county where I live. So I headed up, there's a SWAT guy and, um, and uh, long story short, it ended up being a um, domestic related stalking case where the offender shot and killed his former girlfriend and her new boyfriend. I didn't know anything about the case at the time, obviously, but reading, sort of paying attention to the news cycle after that, realized that it seemed like she was really trying to get help for this case for the year before it happened. Mm. And um, I, I just kind of started looking at research papers, really. What, you know, is there a way to sort of predict if cases are going to be violent, whether it's a domestic violence call or whatnot? And um, so that, that led me into the world of threat assessment. And um, I think in 2010, I went to uh, Gavin DeBecker and Associates Advanced Threat Assessment Academy in uh, Lake Arrowhead, California. And that's when I joined the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals as well. So um, from 2010 on is when I really sort of started getting into this whole area of targeted violence, which includes stalking among other things, so. Mm -hmm. Well, and so the term threat assessment is so important because you, for folks that have been in a controlling relationship and now so say is marriage, you know, in the context of this podcast, and now they've separated, clearly there was, you know, some abuse and very controlling behavior before, but once that separation happens, things get really dangerous, right? Right. And the stalking can get kick into high gear or even, you know, stalking behavior show up that weren't even, it didn't even exist, but now this person's lost control. Right. right. And they don't know, they want to know where you are and what you're doing and it, it can just escalate. And so for the victim, yes, we don't know where it's going to end, right. you know? And, and so yes, having someone or a tool for law enforcement to assess what level of threat that is sounds right. brilliant. And so right. I'm so glad that you're here to talk about it. So what has your experience been, or what are your thoughts uh, on the world of divorce and stalking or threat assessment? Well, I, I mean, uh, stalking happens so often. Um, some of the numbers are, and, and I'll let your your listeners do the math, but if you take your population and divide that by a thousand, uh, wherever you live, and then multiply that by 27, that's the rough number of actual stalking cases that are occurring year to year in your jurisdiction. Wow. And um, it's almost universally undercharged and underinvestigated and just not recognized. Right. Um, and so there's so much of it out there um, and it can be defined in various ways and, and sort of each definition sort of adds something to the argument. But, um, you know, it's been called inappropriate pursuit. I think that's uh, Gavin DeBecker's description in his book, The Gift of Fear, if you've ever read that. OK. Um, obsessional following pathological fixation, which means you're so fixated on your target that it starts to negatively affect your life in some way. Um, you know, it could be you're spending all your time on your fixation that your, your work is going by the wayside or your friends and family. Um, maybe you're burning through a lot of money as part of, you know, in, in terms of spending that money on your stocking behaviors. So mm -hmm. it's pathological in some way. And there's another one too, that's another definition where it starts with an emotional fixation and then ends up in some unwanted obsessional pursuit. I think all these definitions contribute something to our understanding, but 
they, they all boil down to there's some sort of obsession and then some sort of behaviors on the part of the offender that causes the target to feel oppressed, uh, you know, fear for safety or safety of friends or family members um, or, or persecuted in some way. Absolutely. And it obviously it affects the victim's behavior because now you've, you, you know, from what I've heard in my experience that no longer, I don't want to go on my computer. I'm afraid to use my phone. I'm at the park with my kids and look up and he or she is standing across the street staring at me. Right. Um, it's, you know, unwanted gifts being left. And so loss of sleep, looking over your shoulder, you know, and it's just this whole world of living yeah. in paranoia. Yeah, um, I mean, some, some victims end up feeling like they're prisoners in their own homes. Um, and there's actually a study out of, I want to say it was South Florida uh, a few years ago, that asks stalking victims to characterize sort of what they're going through. And the fear of not knowing where and if he's going to show up was actually worse than when he showed up, right? Um, and so, and that gets ignored in the criminal justice system a lot, I think, um, whether it's, uh, you know, police or prosecutors or judges, the sort of the emotional strain and the emotional trauma of just always wondering is kind of ignored uh, when we look at charging these out and, you know, convictions and things like that. So. Absolutely. I completely agree. And I want, Katie, I would like you to chime in because I'd like you to tell us what your situation was and, um, you know, what kind of stalking abuse you've suffered. Sure. Well, I'm, I'll try to summarize. Um, so, you know, first of all, you know, I got connected with Randy. So I've been, I'm um, three years post-separation and uh, my divorce is even finalized. Um, and my former husband um, had the power and control issues during our marriage. And when we separated his stalking, or I didn't even know what it was at the time, but I would say obsession was, I guess, I couldn't even put a, a terms to what was going on, Exp you know, acting as if we were still married, acting as if he's going to come back, acting as if, if I saw him again, I'd fall in love with him. Mm. Um, and then started to harass my family and my friends. Um, and it wasn't until just about nine months ago that he began harassing my boss, um, trying to get her to stop being my friend, stop supporting me and started to try to blackmail and exhort her and her family to get her to stop uh, being part of my life, to isolate me, that she reached out to a friend of a friend and that friend connected us to Randy. And so then Randy came into my life and did basically a, a threat assessment on uh, my situation, read the writings, read uh, my former husband's rantings and everything. And when he looked at my case and started giving me a framework in which to see what I was experiencing. It was two things. It was super validating because every, I was listening to the checklist of what a ghost stalker is and I could almost check off every single one of them. It was like mind blowing. Wow. And it was also terribly scary because it was the first time I couldn't be in denial about my situation where I was like, okay, well, oh, he's not that bad. Oh, it's just this. I would really, that's how I survived my marriage. It's just complete minimization of my situation. So I wouldn't feel scared. Sure. And once I validated that, no, he is pathological in what he's doing and there's no, no nothing in 
uh, place to make him stop, even though I have a five-year DVRO, even though he's breaking court orders, there's no one listens. Um, or if they listen, they don't understand what to do with it. Like the police, they're doing their best they can, but they still, I often get this, well, I've seen much worse. Like, well, you're not punched. Has he actually showed up? Is he, did he actually hit you? You know, is, does he have a gun with him? And as, and as opposed to actually hearing that this is, I guess, what we call a course of conduct, which I just learned recently, um, and how that he's very dangerous because of this obsession. And so, yeah, I have all of those symptoms, like a bird hit the window the other day and I jumped out of my skin. Um, I'll hear like a creak in the, at night and I'll be like, oh no, it's, you know, I'll check all my cameras, um, you know, and there's just these things where I'm like, well, hopefully he won't be, hopefully he won't come over and, and hurt us, but it's, it's just such a weird world to live in. And so that's why I'm so grateful to have vocabulary to put to my situation. And I hope other people will too. That's a really good point having, because it is more empowering that you feel like you have the vocabulary because it means someone did some work to, like you said, validate what you went through and actually, you know, took the time to label it and understand what it is. And so speaking of the assessment that you said, Randy did, Randy, can you speak more to that and how that worked? Yeah. So, um, I am a big proponent of using, you know, validated tools, uh, from the social sciences to, to, to make assessments. And, um, you know, one thing I'm a, I'm a firm believer, you know, my specialty is threat assessment and management. It really does no good or doesn't benefit mo- many people to just do an assessment, say, while well, you're high risk, right? And then not do any management stuff, sure. right? They go hand in hand. So, um, you know, we use, I use different tools depending on what kind of violence I'm looking at. Um, in Katie's case, I used a screening tool. Um, called the SASH from Australia. And um, that's uh, been through some studies overseas and found to pretty well separate your low risk cases from your high risk cases. Um, In law enforcement, we get, um, you know, we get a lot of reports of harassment. And so you need to be able to triage them somehow, right? Right. um, Because we have limited resources. So, you know, I use something like that to triage a case. And then um, in um, her case, then I applied the full tool, which is called the stocking risk profile. Um, And that's a structured professional judgment tool that requires some training. Um, It's based on research. So the authors, the researchers have identified um, behaviors that are uh, highly correlated with violence. Um, It also looks at persistence because that's the other part. There's violence, which everybody's concerned about, but then mm-hmm. how long am I, am I going to have to deal with this? You know, right. is he going to be in my, the back of my mind for the next five years? Cause he's just not knocking it off. So persistence is also assessed in this tool and then reoccurrence if uh, the stocking stops for like six months or longer. And then, you, you know, you want to get an idea whether it's being used for courts or, or victims or law enforcement, do we have to be worried that this is going to start up again at some point? So, um, so I use tools as much as I can to um, eliminate um, biases I may have um, as just as a person, as a cop, whatever. Um, so having a, a tool like this is, is really beneficial and I think was really helpful in Katie's case. Absolutely. Because I'm imagine, like you said, Katie, 
you go to the police and you're like, he's, you know, been, you describe all these odd behaviors. And then you say he has, you know, seven guns and some of them are automatic, whatever you say. And they're like, like you said, they're like, our hands are tied. Has he done anything? Has he touched you yet? Has he? And so like you said, right, unless they have a tool to say, okay, no, this person, according to our assessments and falls clearly into this category based on this criteria, you know, now maybe it can give them to tools to the tools to do something about it. And how do you plan to use this assessment in your case? Uh, well, that's a good question. I mean, our case is ongoing a little bit. And so this, I feel, is the first step to be heard in both um, the family court and criminal court. Um, so and then he did give me a management um, case uh, procedures for both myself and the stalker. So for myself, I've list, looked at the management and am implementing it. Some of it is I think like cocooning where you tell your family and friends what's going on and you give them the information and tell them to be on the lookout. Some of it is you know, having a buddy system and I'm actually thinking about getting a dog. <laughs> I've heard those are good um, support teams as well. Sure. So that's some of the things I'm hoping to do. But what I heard um, Randy said is like, how does it stop? And I think that's going to be one of our biggest questions going forward, because this person hasn't shown any desire to stop, nor has there been any um, big things to get him to stop, even with a DVRO. So that's just a big question mark in my case. Sure. And so, Randy, you had asked um, or mentioned wondering how this information is going to be used. So speaking of court cases and specifically in divorce, how do you recommend people document their stalking? Um, stalking is one of the few crimes where it really depends on the victim of the crime to build their own case, right? Okay. Um, because all these, usually these behaviors that are associated with stalking are happening outside, you know, any police involvement. And so you have to be a meticulous record, record keeper. Uh, I always recommend um, starting with a stalking log and you can find free examples on the internet. Uh, the former stalking resource center um, still has a website up and running, I believe, and still has a stalking log you can download. But go back to the first uh, creepy <laughs> or um, even assault of behavior that sort of started everything. Okay. Um, a lot of times you see, you know, a lot of people are, are probably familiar with the power and control wheel that deals with domestic violence and, and how offenders control their partner. And, I, and you kind of touched on this earlier, Jackie, is that once there's a separation, now they've lost control. So they try to reassume control through stalking oftentimes, right? Right. And so um, anyways, so you want to really document, document, document. And the other thing is collect your evidence, especially in today's digital age. Um, get, you know, screenshots of text messages, save your emails. And I would encourage um, your listeners who may be going through this to learn how to find full email headers their emails because that's going to provide the law enforcement um, with that path that that email traveled to get to you uh, with IP addresses and things like that. So that's going to be good evidence. Okay. Photographs. Um, everybody's got smartphones now. So if you if your stalker is engaging in what we call approach behavior, which is showing up at your house or your workplace or wherever, 
uh, make sure you grab photos. Um, in in those those photos is going to be metadata, which has date, time, oftentimes your GPS coordinates, um, and we can pull that with um, metadata readers, and that's great evidence. Okay. Um, for for billing your stocking case, um, those are probably the biggest things is are, are the stocking log and just learning how to collect all that digital evidence because so many the vast majority of, of stocking cases now involve some sort of uh, technology, right? Absolutely. Um, it's not like the olden days, like the movie Taxi from the 70s, where you actually have to show up and put a little more effort into it and actually yep. park outside your target's place of employment or whatnot. Uh, now, a lot of it happens right from somebody's you know, basement. So absolutely um, i can't tell you how many clients i've i've sent to have their you know computer swept and whatnot and often found things um so you're absolutely right technology is definitely the the new and popular way to stock mm -hmm. i so i want to ask you this and then katie i want you to chime in with your experience but randy when should victims be worried like what's the at what point do you say oh my god this you know this is gone yeah. too far well, I can tell you from like the stocking uh, risk profile, um, there are five red flag indicators just from that tool. Um, suicidal ideation on the part of the stalker, obviously. Any homicidal ideation or articulating homicidal threats, um, especially in domestic violence cases is really important. Um, last resort thinking, mm. they start articulating ideas like, you know, if I can't have you, no one can, or ideas of sort of running out of time or having to do something right away to, to get you back, um, putting wills together, you know, those kinds of things. Okay. Giving away important, um, you know, talking about giving away important uh, things, you know, wh whether it's heirlooms or, or their car or whatever it is. Um, there's a high risk uh, psychotic phenomena, which gets sort of into the weeds. Um, it's kind of helpful to have a uh, mental health person, maybe sit over your shoulder if you're using this uh, for that reason. But, you know, that would include things like morbid um, jealousy, um, some hallucination, like command hallucinations to hurt people, um, those kinds of things. And then psychopathy is the last one. And psychopathy is sort of the extreme end of antisocial personality disorder, if you will. Okay. And there are, there's an actual tool out there, the psycho, Psychopathy Checklist Revised, PCLR, um, that a lot of psychologists or psychiatrists are familiar with and trained on. So um, the presence of psychopathy in a, in a special domestic violence stalking case is, is pretty concerning. Okay. So those things in particular, obviously, I also sort of separate, separate stalking cases from you know, ones that just are using technology to ones that are actually approaching their target, right? Okay. Um, so if he's actually physically showing up where you're at, that's obviously a lot more concerning for violence because he typically can't hurt you if he's not near you. So as long as the stocking's just on text messages or emails, I'm less concerned for violence than if he actually starts showing up kind of thing. Sure, absolutely, that makes sense. And so Katie, at what point were you, for instance, like I, I need to hire someone like Randy or what, what were the sort of the straw that broke the camel's back? Yeah, when it started turning to my community um, to attempt to isolate me, to sway public opinion against me. Um, and then there were a long um, rants, 
that you know bordered some of these things. Um, the, the first thing that got me to leave you know, four years ago was uh, suicidal ideation and homicidal ideation. And um, he quickly learned that that was not okay in public opinion or to say it. And so ever since then, he's not been vocalizing those things because uh, people you know, took him seriously and thought him as a big threat. But you can see some of the other last resort thinking occasionally when he might say things like, well, I don't care if I go to jail um, and mm. imagine seeing me at places I'm not. So he'll be like, oh, I saw you X, Y, Z um, the other day. And we're like, no, that's not. So there was other things that were very concerning that made me think that, oh, this is not normal and I need help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you had alluded earlier to some things that that you're sort of doing to keep safe or some ideas, but Randy, what should people do or not do if they're in a stocking situation? Yeah, uh, and and this is one that, uh, and again, this is just my humble opinion, um, And but I, I think there are a lot of other folks who, who are specialists in the stocking area would agree with these. When you're being... Um, First of all, I mean, the safety things like cocooning, like uh, Katie already talked about, there's also a, a pro- some a proximity uh, person. So somebody in your life you trust that knows where you're going to be somewhere and when you're going to be there. And so as you're traveling, you know, whether it's to or from work or you're going out to a movie, um, that you're going to let that person know when you're home safe and when you're leaving, those kinds of things. Um, so that's going to be helpful. But besides that, um, when you're being stalked through technology, um, you know, like text messages or Facebook uh, messages, um, I always tell people to not block the offender if you can. And I think there are three reasons. And I've had, you know, 11 years of experience in this now, just really focused on stalking. And the, the three reasons for not blocking them are, are one, if you, if you keep that line of communication open between him and you, um, you allow him to dig his hole in, in term, you know, legally speaking. Yeah. Right? So you can document. Sure. Yep. You're documenting more behaviors and that's potentially um, building a stronger case for, for charging that when you need to. Number two is it gives you sort of a window into the soul or the thinking of the offender. I've had a lot of cases that have just been mostly text messages where the text messages have started out, you know, relatively benign. Um, I love you. I want you back. You know, we're a family, those kinds of things. But they're expressing, you know, um, a sense of loss and I want to get you back. Uh, but then right before, and in some, unfortunately, some of these cases have ended up in homicide. And you can see right, you know, in a day or two before the homicide where the tone of the messages changes completely um, to, um, from going from I love you to I hate you to, to you're tearing up our family, I wish you were dead, um, those kinds of things. And you're going to miss that change in thinking if you block them completely. Um, and then the last one is just in, if you block them, that could escalate the case, actually. Um, and we see escalation in, I don't know, 20, 20% of the cases maybe when, when they're blocked. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had cases that I've have successfully um, investigated and gotten convictions on for felony stalking in, in my state, where um, where the the uh, it's clear that the blocking actually escalated things. So one case in particular, um, my victim when when she did 
block him and from text texting, uh, he would start showing up at her house or her workplace. And so to manage that in her mind, she actually unblocked him um, and then started communicating back. So he would send her text message and she'd respond. And that actually kept him at bay in terms of he, he wouldn't show up at her workplace anymore. So that was a uh, sort of uh, a safety measure that she undertook and sort of intuitively knew that would work. And it did. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if, if, if he realizes he's not communicating with you at all, you're not receiving anything, then a lot of times he's going to up the ante and start driving by, or he's going to find different ways to communicate with you. Yeah. So. Then you, that's where you get the now showing up in person and, right. and yeah, that becomes a huge red flag. And that also leads back to why it's so important to document, um, just really detailed documentation, because I think we had this conversation before. Look, say the court looks at this and says, well, look, you're, you're responding back and forth with him. What did you expect? And it really needs to be understood. No, that was strategic communication to keep him in a, a more calm state so that his right. behavior didn't escalate. It was really a safety measure. Right. Um, and so, yes, there's a lot of strategy that it sounds like. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of victims have to do that because a lot of times their stalking cases aren't taken seriously. Right. Yeah. And yep. so in their minds, they're kind of out on their own. Nobody's helping them stay safe. So they're doing what they think they need to do to stay safe. Sure. Um, that can be overcome in court if if you have somebody who's experienced in stalking uh, cases and investigations and behaviors and can explain that in their reports or explain that to the prosecutor, et cetera. Sure. And so this leads me to my next question, actually. You're one man. <laughs> yep. And I know you do a lot of other threat assessment in other areas in schools what and whatnot, like, like lots of different yes. arenas. Um, what should people do? Should they go to their local police stations that ask, please get trained in stalking threat assessment? Like, what can people do yeah. to, like, raise awareness? Boy, that's a great question. Um, you know, I guess for one, you know, work with your, if you're a victim of stalking is, is go to your domestic violence advocacy agency for one, that's probably okay. a good place to start. Um, they tend to have more training, obviously, in domestic violence and stalking and victim management and all that kind of stuff. You know, one other thing is find, find out if there is an expert in your local police department. Um, and I, and don't get, uh, um, I guess you have to be persistent. Um, you may get assigned a patrol officer who, who clearly doesn't get it at first, but if you can ask around, you might be able to find a patrol officer or detective, uh, somebody who's kind of known for, for an expertise in this area. So look for that. Mm -hmm. I would look for anybody who's in law enforcement, who's a member of the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals. Okay. Um, because they're sprinkled all over the country. And, um, you know, there's a lot of folks who are cops who are part of ATAP. Um, there are prosecutors, um, there are, you know, corporate security type folks, uh, it, which brings me up to, you know, if you work for a, a corporation that has a threat assessment unit, that can be really helpful uh, because just you don't necessarily always need law enforcement to manage that case for you. Then you can work through your corporate threat assessment team. That's a really good point. Yes, because uh, to my point, yeah, you do a lot of different threat assessment, one of them being corporate, um, right. another one schools, like I mentioned, um, and then also the work that you've done for Katie. And uh, just, I want to thank you both so much for coming on, because like I said, it's 
the victim doesn't know where it's going to end, right? And, and how scary it is. So again, that threat assessment, but then the management piece as well is so important. And it's so nice to know that someone like you, Randy, is out there doing the work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, because in these situations with the post-separation abuse, yeah, this behavior just escalates and things start popping up that, that didn't even exist maybe in the marriage as controlling right. as that was. And Katie, I wanna thank you so much for coming on and sharing. And do you, Katie, do you have any final advice for anyone out there listening today? Oh, well, no, I mean, everything was covered. I've just been really appreciative of Randy um, and I've just jumped into educating myself, reading Daniel DeBecker and a bunch of other things that he's given me because I, I did hear, I did identify with what Randy said is sometimes the victims do feel alone and they're like the only ones that can manage. And if, you know, we began to, first learn that this is a thing and probably a long-term thing and then learn how to manage it ourselves in, in a small degree, that is a lot more empowering than just feeling helpless and like you have to be reactive all the time. Absolutely, on the defense, constantly yes. on the defense. And so, yeah, having some education and then also some tools that could help, I agree, right. much more empowering. And so thank you for the advice also, Randy, on people contacting their local domestic violence organization. Um, and also just please, sir, anyone out there that's that's suffering from this research stalking, I know there's stalkingawareness.org. Um, and they also have a stalking log and I will be posting one on JackieMillerCoaching.com on my blog page so that people can download those to help document those behaviors. And again, I want to thank you both for coming on, sharing your expertise and your experiences and, um, you know, just letting people out there know that they're not alone. My pleasure. Thanks for uh, getting this message out there, Jackie. I appreciate that. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Randy. And thank you, Katie. All right. You guys take care. All right. Bye-bye.